Welcome to the Coworking Weekly Show, session number three. I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and today we've got yet another experiment, because why not? We can we can still do that, right? So uh, in a segment that I'm going to call The Stack, uh, and I want to give you a little bit of backstory on why this is called The Stack, and then a little bit about how it's going to go. So I have a friend whose name is Vanessa Generelli. Vanessa is a learning researcher and works for an organization called P2PU. That's the letter P, number two, letter P, letter U. Org, if you're into checking that out. And Vanessa is, uh, in addition to being a friend and an amazing person, uh, one of the most interesting people in my life when it comes to having uh, conversations about the things that we do. And when I say we, I'm talking about you and me, the people that build organizations, that build communities, bring people together, and whether that's in a co-working space or in a company or in a classroom. Uh, actually, Vanessa used to live in Philadelphia, then moved away. And while she was living outside of Philadelphia, we'd get together, you know, once every four months, six months, nine months, so a bunch of time would build up. And when we'd finally get together again, she'd open up the conversation with, all right, here's what's on the stack. And would rattle off a list of 8, 10, 12 things that in the limited time that we had together, she really wanted to talk about. And it was a wide range of topics. It was things that were happening in her life personally, professionally, things she wanted to know more about, just things that she wanted to explore together. And those conversations were always intense they were deep. They were exploratory. When I went home after a day working through the stack with Vanessa, my brain felt like I had been, you know, like when you when you lift heavy weights and at the end of the day, you're like, your muscles are sore. My brain was sore like that. So these conversations with Vanessa were always, uh, they're, they're unique. They're special. And they're really, really interesting. I always learn stuff. Um, and the th- one of the reasons I appreciate it so much is because there's really such a small number of people who I am able to talk to about my work. Um, sort of like Adam talked about in the very first session of Coworking Weekly, there's not a lot of people who you can jump into a conversation with without a whole lot of preamble. And even though that Vanessa works in a very different field than I do, we have so many common themes in how we approach things and the things that we're especially curious about and working on, even though we're doing them in different ways and for different groups of people. So uh, to have someone who understands that we can leap in, uh, but also be able to compare and contrast those things, uh, which gives us room to agree as well as disagree. And um, the truth is that Vanessa and I don't always agree. And uh, I, I'm excited to be able to share that with you as well, because when we don't agree, it's especially important and illuminating. Uh, it's also important to me to bring someone like Vanessa on the Coworking Weekly Show because she's a member of Indie Hall and in fact has been a member of Indie Hall now twice. I mentioned before when she was away and she's recently moved back to Philadelphia and she's here now. Um, but she's also been a member of other co-working spaces all around the world. And far too often, the members of our communities, their voices are missing from the conversation about co-working. And let's be honest, in the world of co-working, there's a few thousand co-working spaces, but there is, as of most recently, I think Steve King from Emergent Research at the last report said there was over a 100,000 people working in co-working spaces around the world, and they're, maybe it's even more than that, and they're predicting a million by like 2018 or something like that. So however this goes, there's always going to be more members than there are of 
us, and when I say us, I'm talking about owners, founders, operators, people that run co-working spaces, right? Um, so their voices need to be in this. So Vanessa's voice is also one of a member. And the third reason I'm excited about Vanessa and the stack is because uh, um, I want to invite you into an exercise in connecting the dots between seemingly unrelated things. Uh, a big part of building great communities and teams and collaborations is being able to create natural transitions between things that aren't necessarily obviously related. And the way you do that is by noticing patterns and connections. So in each of these sessions of the stack, and you'll definitely see this in the first one, we're going to be working through three topics that aren't clearly related, but use them as cornerstones for a conversation. And I say this to you now, truly and honestly, we didn't know how this was going to go when we went into it, but you'll see that it's a really natural evolution and connection of ideas uh, over the course of our conversation. Uh, before we get started, though, one favor. If you haven't yet, please consider firing up iTunes, either on your phone or on your computer, uh, and consider going in to give the Coworking Weekly show a rating. The easiest way to find it is to use search. You can search for Coworking Weekly. Uh, go to the show page and click rating and review. Both a rating and a review help out a ton. And when you rate and review, it helps other people find the Coworking Weekly show. And that means that more people can learn about co-working. And the more people that know about what we do means that all of our jobs can be that much better. Uh, that's enough of an, more than enough of an intro for me. Let's get into the first episode of The Stack with Vanessa Generelli. I am going to go help Amy paint her dining room butter colored later today butter of course hey, butter colored butter, yeah and i got my wonder woman mug yeah you do yeah and uh what else is new just book travel to dc for next week <sighs> was that good for your sound testing that's great for my sound testing <laughs> this kind of reminds me of when i interviewed you for my graduate work but like I was at the MIT Media Lab, and you were at Indie Hall. And now, two years later, you're in a pillow, you're in a blanket fort, <laughs> and I have my Wonder Woman mug. And oh, isn't it great that isn't it nice that we've grown up? <laughs> isn't that isn't that great? So, I also like that we're doing it video, and you're recording the audio as well, because I I would like to see you. Yes, I think that's super important, and. Uh, you know, facial expressions and things like that. You taught me all about facial expressions. Maybe we talk about facial expressions one day. You should add that to the stack for the future. It's on. It's on there about feelings. Oh, so you got talk like, about so you sent me a stack, and there's like sub stack. Yeah, there's sub stack. There's oh, Jiminy Crickets. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't put a bullet point on there if I couldn't think about three things that I wanted to talk to you about that relate to that thing. Okay, that's interesting. So each one of these bullet points is is, a, is at minimum sort of like three facets more to explore, which means we can revisit some of them in the future. Totally. Cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, today uh, I picked from the master list that you sent me three things for the stack. 
Um, and we're going to be talking about accreditation and whatever the fuck that is. Open governance, which I think I know what that is. And how we create goals and, in parentheses, grow personally. Um, and those three things are like... Like I could kind of sort of connect them in my head, um, but I get the sneaking suspicion they're going to be a little more connected than we think. Could be. Could be. Um, so I should also say that I picked like these things: accreditation and uh, open governance and personal goals. Those are things that, like, when I would be traveling and I would wonder, I you know, I I'd really like Alex's take on that. Um, and then I come home and you would be like, why are we talking about this? And I would say, because of X, Y, Z and how it relates to the things that we do. Um, so yeah, they, they definitely do, but they might not seem like they relate to what we do immediately. Right. Um, but accreditation underscores all of the sort of community plus education initiatives that you and I are involved with. All right, like, let's let's start there and, okay. and let's let's break that apart. So I hear the word accreditation, and my it's like that's a trigger word for me, right? Because I hear accreditation, I think higher education institutions. And for the people who uh, you know don't know me as well, you're listening to two people, one of which holds multiple degrees from um, some pretty classy institutions, and that person's not me. Uh, <laughs> and then I. I went to um, a, a pretty good university uh, by the name of Drexel University and did not complete. Um, mm. So I'm one of those university dropouts. So I hear the word accreditation and I think I hear bureaucracy. I hear institution. Um, I hear a bunch of things that make me uncomfortable. And okay. I, I, get the, I get the sneaking suspicion we're going to be talking about this maybe from, from another perspective. Well, from several perspectives. The first is that... Um, Class underpins the entire discussion about accreditation. And accreditation means uh, recognition by an outside body that enables institutions, whether it's vocational, nursing, dentistry, um, to award credentials. So I kind of use accreditation and credentialing interchangeably, but they're not. Um, Accreditation is the recognition of the ability to give meaningful credentials. Um, and the, the way that it comes into play with what you and I do in our day-to-day lives is that we hear about the skills gap. Everyone who hires people or quote-unquote technical talent is talking about the fact that folks who go to college are ill-prepared for the workforce and that there's this massive gap in technical talent and everybody is, is you know basically meeting developers at the airport to try to recruit them. And that's like um, the sort of state of technical hiring today. Um, And you hire people. I do. Uh, The other piece about this is, in addition to the skills gap, that co-working spaces are often the places of informal education. And you, I mean, you want to talk a little bit about how you think about education and co-working spaces and how that works? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it falls into really two categories. And it's actually really interesting. One of the sort of data sets that I present a lot um, about reasons that people join and stay a member of Indie Hall include... um, when the people join, I'm sorry, is, uh, which is it, join or stay? I can't remember which category, but learning mm-hmm. shows up crazy low on the list. It shows up in the top 10, but way lower than I would expect when you consider that it's such a common thing that people bring up 
in conversation. And it's like sort of picking it apart and trying to figure out, well, what's that about? What I think is, happens is learning works in, in co-working spaces in two ways. There's the formal learning, which mm-hmm. is a workshop, a lecture, mm-hmm. a class, even mm-hmm. like a show and tell. But like this topic, this time, come fill your brain with stuff. Right. right? That's the stuff that people think of when you ask them about learning. But it's also like the tiniest slice of the pie when it comes to the learning that happens in co-working spaces. I think the really exciting stuff and what we've been best at and what I think co-working mm-hmm. spaces are best at is the the stuff that transfers through more casual interactions. So it's totally. the, you know, hey, I saw you doing something. Can you show me how you did that? Or, totally. Or, hey, I'm stuck on something. Can you help me with a problem? Or even the stuff that falls into more of like the, you know, the tacit knowledge category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like the stuff that's tough to learn, you know, the, the, what is your profession's equivalent of riding a bicycle? Like you can't right. learn to ride a bicycle by watching a video or reading a book. You need someone there that you trust to watch them do it and then try it yourself and have them say, yeah, yeah, no, you got it. Like hold the bike up. Um, mm-hmm. there's a, in business, you know, I think of things like sales, you can read a book on sales and sales mm-hmm. tactics, but to get really mm-hmm. good at sales, you need a mentor. You need yeah. that person that you trust that you can follow. Um, and I think there's a lot of skills. I don't know why I left sales cause it's like the last thing on my actual list. Um, although I think it's something that like freaks people out and they're af- afraid to learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in co-working spaces, I think the majority of the learning that happens is not learning that people think of as learning because it's happening informally, right. which I guess in this context of accreditation is if you're learning informally, there's no accreditation associated with it. And so are you actually a professional? Are yes. you are you qualified and capable to do this thing that you learned while socializing totally. with peers? And, you know, while I imagine, like, is there research that shows the quality of the learning shifting in those two different sort of dynamics? Well, the accreditation has three problematic pieces. Like the, the folks who are more in the alt education world, which would be me at peer-to-peer university and you at Indie Hall, um, you know, we're really stoked about being able to recognize those skills that have been emerged tacitly through interactions. Um, but that isn't included in the sort of formal credentialing um, recognition. It would be very difficult for someone to take the skills that they learn at Indie Hall, which, by the way, is already a privileged position. Because if you're at Indie Hall, you're probably at the top of your game. Right. And port them somewhere else. Right. Um, and on top of that, we see co-working spaces becoming more engaged in the formal space. Um, what do you mean by that? So folks like General Assembly, um, folks like Dev Bootcamp, which are associated with co-working spaces, are interested in applying for accreditation um, because accreditation gets you one really tasty thing. It gets you access to financial aid. So mm. but these... Um, these Money programs, makes the world yeah. go round. Yeah. So like, and, and you know, these... Um, these programs that cost a metric assload of money, you know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars, and students can't pay that out of pocket all up front. Um, you know, GA and and similar uh, similar institutions, I guess we can call them now. Like, well, how can we close this gap? We can get formally accredited, and that way folks can get financial aid. But accreditors, on the flip side, are very interested in the quality of accreditation. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's so difficult to get accredited because an outside body is going to look and say, well, how is that similar to, how can we protect the student that they're buying an awesome set of goods that has relevance in the marketplace? 
Well, and you know, it's in, <laughs> and the 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 governing body uh, that de- who designates accreditation is it the government? No, it's actually these they're regional bodies that are apart from the government, and it has it goes back to federalism. It goes back to checks and balances. They're outside of the government to be a little bit more of uh, an objective body. Okay, and professors are on them. Uh, policy folks are on them, and uh, and it's pretty expensive to get accreditation, in my opinion. And so the tricky part is that it it does a really good job of keeping out the keep, junk. Yeah, not only keeping out the junk, but uh, ensuring that the current institutions are the only institutions that will ever exist. Oh, that's interesting. So it's it's a double edged sort of mm-hmm. the bar is high to keep uh, keep the bar high. Exactly. The bar is in this case so high that it it sort of protects the the uh, academic fiefdoms that are you know that can afford it that you know, both in both in case of like time and money and resources mm-hmm. i imagine there's legal stuff that's associated totally. with this as well um super interesting so um and i remember i think it was like the first ignite philly talk i ever gave uh years ago was i like this this ti- i think the title was like coworking.edu mm-hmm. and like what would the experience of a co-working space in an, a learning environment look like um and you know, referencing some some of the you know the the education pop culture favorites like Sir Ken Robinson, um, and actually it's been a while since I went back and I, I I know it's recorded the videos out there. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I have no idea how my opinions have changed because it was really it was long enough ago that I re- don't I don't really remember all of the details mm-hmm. of it. But the other thing that I'm thinking of is um, there's a co working space in um, in West Michigan, uh, run by my my buddy Aaron Scop. Uh, called the factory uh and he's been working on something called that he's been calling co-learning mm-hmm. um and so it's you know a bunch of things that fall into our model well i'll have to bring him on for for you know another episode or something to talk about that maybe we can talk about that together with him because uh he's he's does not come from the education world he mm-hmm. definitely comes from the tech and entrepreneurship world but like co-design has been a big part of their program, which I know is a big part of your research as well. Um, and they went through something recently, and it's n- not technically accreditation, but I think it's, it allows them to provide certifications mm-hmm. from the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a topic that, you know, when, when he posted, you know, we're official, we've got this document from the state, I immediately reached out and I was like, well, what does that mean? Yeah, now? WTF. Yeah. yeah, and it sounds like a big part of it is they're able to subsidize costs, mm-hmm. which allows them to provide this kind of education to people who are, don't necessarily have the ability to afford it. It right. sounds like that's the primary motivation for him, um, but I'm curious to see, you know, and it's simply to be completely honest, I don't know all the details what it was like to go through that. It sounded like it was kind of a pain in the neck. And it was it's a it's a regional thing. It's a, it's an, mm-hmm. um, it's state or is it regional? I don't know. Okay, um, but we can, those are yeah. those are different. But we can mm-hmm. find out more. Um, so like there's examples of of independent, relatively small scale programs. I think mm-hmm. Aaron's had you know a couple hundred people go through co learning in the last year and change, which is a you know not insignificant yeah. dent in Word. um in you know being able to pull off, but. Uh, I'm curious about the barriers he's run into as well. Well, um, the certification, I mean, there are several levels of accreditation, right? There's certification, there are associate's degrees, there are BAs. 
Um, and different different governing bodies like recognize that accreditation. Um, and I remember you were over for dinner and we were talking about the importance of accreditation. You were like, why do people need it? Like what's, you know, when you can design your own destiny, like why is this important? And um, as folks who, you and I are, are pretty big misfits. Um, sorry about that. That's you and right. I are misfits. It's true. <laughs> uh, you know, how does this, how does this apply to our lives? And it applies to our lives in that um, we care about humanity um, and folks who are not in our positions of being able to uh, work remotely or sort of design what we want to do and we want to bring folks into that, um, the ability to design your own freedom includes getting promotions and recognition and, uh, and for folks who are in more, sorry about that, in more structured workspaces, it's very important, like credentialing is very important for them to keep their jobs, for them to take on new gigs, for them to get promotions. So, uh, so if you're a state, if you're a government employee to move up a ladder and pay scale, that sort of stuff, like it's, it's still very uh, important. And I think that we should, we, when we talk about accreditation, we probably need to check our class privilege a little bit. Um, because even the ability to come up with a cohesive narrative about our lives is a class privilege. Like the the fact that you you know you have this uh, narrative about how you came to co-working, and I have this narrative about how I came to peer learning. But uh, that's it's like it, it is a it is a difficult. Um, that's why resumes suck because the ability to put together a cohesive story of who you are um, is classed. Yeah, that's really true. Well, and so maybe this is a uh, this is our first connection into how mm-hmm. we create goals and grow person personally. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, we can talk about how you and I do it, um, and I'm especially interested in because I know you've done a bunch of research on how people do it and are doing mm-hmm. it individually and in groups. Um, so, like for me, my goals sort of fall into two categories i've got my like big picture will never accomplish it in my lifetime goal what's a goal like that so i want the the entire world to be excellent at collaboration (laughs) that's that's honestly like that's why everything i do exists Mm -hmm. um it's you know when philadelphia when i did not have people in my own backyard it's not that i didn't have them here i didn't know who they were i didn't know who in my own backyard i could collaborate with it was hard for me to get the work done that i wanted to do Mm-hmm. Right. So Indie Hall was not because I needed a place to work, but it was because I needed people who were attuned to working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever I venture outside of Indie Hall, uh, I am often quickly and um, abruptly reminded that the world is not full of people who are attuned to collaboration. A lot of people, I think, are still have um, uh, I- infections in their wounds that probably looked a lot like... Um, or that were inflicted by like class projects or something yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, when you've got people who are who you know, and again, uh, um, t- you know, skilled, motivated, whatever it might be, they find themselves saying, "Okay, I'm surrounded by people. I'm going to mm-hmm. end up pulling the weight of this." And you go through enough of that, and you become kind of resentful of collaboration, and so you end up swinging the pendulum the other way. Into, I'll do it myself. I'll do everything myself. Right. Which is, I think, like. Like an underpinning uh, or maybe an undercurrent of where this sort of 
like rush for entrepreneurship came from. Oh, yeah. Right. Cause it's like, I can do it myself because screw those other guys. And what did people do? They went, the first thing they do to do things themselves is they go out and they seek co-founders, you knuckleheads. Um, so it's like, bad habits die hard right so i think people have these like these scars of mm -hmm. of and about collaboration even in the workplace like all the incentives are in the wrong place for you to actually work with your coworkers because you're competing for promotions or even yeah. just attention and recognition totally. so collaboration in the workplace collaboration while you're working on something building the trust necessary to actually collaborate not just work together is really hard um and the world is at a serious deficit of people who do it, um, not just naturally, but with with happiness and confidence, and where collaboration brings them joy. And I want that. That's a big part of why I'm doing this podcast because I want to share a that it's possible and b mm -hmm. show people how. Yeah. And, and c and maybe this should have been a is why it's worth it at all. Well, and yeah, you we talk a lot about co-design and we encounter a lot of people who see our community expertise and experience and they're like, how do we get more people in the room? How do we grow our community? How do we like how do we make it big? What what kind of marketing do you guys use? Yep. And the truth of the matter is, you and I both do this, we co-design. Like we find we find collaborators and uh, work with them on whatever our, you know, learning goals or project goals are. And then that's that's this like you use the word infection, but like that's how the marketing works when you do it emergently. Right. It's like you get people well, super. All stoked. of my all of my marketing is an infection. <laughs> Alex Holman is just an infection. Yeah. And maybe I should stop using the word infection because it sounds gross and vir virus <laughs> because viruses sound cool. Right. Right. Well, and um, and, and hackers use viruses, and everybody loves hackers now. <laughs> and they destroy. They don't. Yeah, they don't mess no, up. No, it's true. Uh, but okay, so your life goal so is life goal is a, is a world full of people who who okay. love to collaborate and are good at it or mm -hmm. and more maybe they're not nat they're not instantly good at it, but they're getting better at it. Um, then there's sort of the the midterm goals, which is what is the thing I'm working on now that gets me closer to that larger goal that ultimately will never be accomplished in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And those midterm goals are things that I've got a pretty good idea of. That, that I've set the goal at a scale that is achievable. I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I haven't, like, it's not pie in the sky. And more importantly, the number of things between me and there, I try and keep limited, mm -hmm. right? It, you know, it, I don't have to know all of the, the steps along the way, mm -hmm. but the more, like, I don't like going into fights that I don't think I can win. Uh, so by the time I'm going into it, unless you're doing it for sport, unless, well, <laughs> even then, even then, like, um, you know, I, I, I think there are people who do like going into like convince people of things mm -hmm. and that's not my move. I like, you know, looking at things and going, where is their bottled up momentum and how can I release mm -hmm. it? Right. So that's how I sort of design my midterm goals. You go, where's the bottled up energy that's already pointed in that direction? And how can I introduce myself into that and say, I can help unlock that. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be by doing something, by saying something, by creating something, by teaching something. Um, it really sort of runs the gamut. Uh, and I learn new ways to do it all the time. And there's the immediate goals, which is probably the thing that I, I don't know if I suck at it, but I definitely do it in a weird way. Um, and this is something we've been working on um, as a team at Indie Hall, myself and, and, and Adam and Sam. And like, 
it's important realizing how important it is to share our goals as a team mm-hmm. and making sure that we set both daily goals in addition to knowing what each other's like, you know, check in every month or two, like what are the midterm goals? What are we working towards? Remember what we're working towards. And if we know what each other are working towards, we can remind each other, Hey, you're mm-hmm. working on something mm-hmm. that like seems out of line with what you said you were working on. Right. Not a criticism. Just want to know that in case you didn't sanity see it, check. I did. It's totally yeah. sanity check. The daily goals are probably the hardest. Um, and it's because for me, I keep a ton in my head, which is a super bad habit that I know I have. Um, uh, do you, are you a checklist person? Sort of. Are you a calendar person? Yes. Okay. I'm a calendar person. I think those are two categories of, of goal setting. Mm. And I don't think people think about them as goals. Um, maybe to do list as goals. Cause there's a mm-hmm. sense of satisfaction that comes from like writing it down just to cross it off. I get the same sense of satisfaction when I look at it, when I put things on my calendar and when I look at the end of the day and I go, I did a bunch Shit, of things. I did all that. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is that I, I use my calendar goals to create almost like these micro goals within the day. So I try very hard not to block out entire days of of calendared items. Mm. And the reason for that is I end up with these windows of, you know, an hour or two or three or a half a day, or some days I wake up and I'm like, holy crap, I didn't put anything on my calendar today. I'm awesome. And those windows are opportunity. Right. Mm-hmm. I see that and I go, well, what do I want to get done in that window? And the smaller the window, the more likely I am to set a goal that I'm actually going to achieve that day. So, you know, being able to rattle off, you know, I want to take care of, you know, uh, composing, you know, drafting this blog post. I want to, you know, edit this uh, podcast. I want to get back to these students. Um, the more specific the goal, the better. The more room I give myself, the the soggier my goal setting gets. And sort of like those are the stages of my goals and all of them. Um, and I think I, one of the, the parts that I didn't mention is so if it's just getting work done, I get bored really fast. Okay. I get so- kind of disenfranchised. So there's an element of, and this is sort of a, a thing that I do, I think instinctually is making sure that and I, I guess I did mention it cause I was like, I don't necessarily know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I know it needs to get done. Mm-hmm. And so making sure there's things in my list of things to do that are going to force me to learn something new, try something new is it's a big part of how I decide what I'm going to work on. It's how I, how I choose and prioritize. Well, and just to recap, so you've got the big pie in the sky goal of, and sort of you tag everything that you want to do against that big goal. Yeah. You've got your midterm goals that are somewhat achievable. You've got your daily goals and you know about yourself that if you just get work done to get work done, that's not, that's not Hillman's Mayo. That's, that's right. not, that's not the Alex. That's right. It's not going to, I might be able to get it done for a few days. Mm-hmm. Like I can grind as needed, mm-hmm. but it's not a sustainable I know it's not sustainable for me, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, you know, I'm, I'm missing a burst of creativity or something. It's just like, I need to keep things in balance, but yeah. yeah. And, and I think that one big overarching like value type goal is really important because as it turns out, uh, achieving goals doesn't actually make us very happy. Uh, like the, the goal in and of itself, but working towards this larger thing, like the sort of person that you want to become yeah. makes us very happy. Oh Yeah. So, uh, so that's why, you know, the, the, all of these little apps, they're like checklist apps and they give you that sort of behaviorist hit of accomplishment. But when you look behind you and you see the, the, 
you know, five years of accomplishment towards collaboration in the wider ecosystem, that's what makes us happy. Yeah, no, that's, that's oh. totally true. That's totally true. The, those like quick dopamine hits of, mm-hmm. of, of, of checking, you know, scratching yeah. off a list or completing the day are not, that's not, it's not that it's not actual happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. that it's, it's not the, the, the satisfaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's happiness, which is, and this is like the layers of happiness. Um, there was a, a video, Dan Gilbert did mm-hmm. Stumbling on Happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was a TED Talk, and I th- it might be recently, um, about happiness, um, like a new one, right. a, a, a study. I'll, I'll link to it in, in the show notes as well. And it basically boiled down to um, you, if you are unable to well there's two kinds of happiness there's that satisfaction happiness there's also like manufactured happiness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um we can our our bot we can tell the difference between the act like the real happiness mm-hmm. we can't tell the difference between the manufactured happiness and i think the study was something like you know choosing favorite photos out of a, a lineup or artwork yeah. and then yeah. like taking it home and right. whether or not people appreciated or were happy that they owned it. And right. they, they did this study. I'm leaving out a bunch of important details, mm-hmm. of course, because I don't <laughs> remember. Um, but they did ran the study on people who have short-term amnesia. Mm-hmm. And so people who did not know that they did or did not own it were able to manufacture the happiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were just told that they owned it. And they were like, oh, nice. I li- I'm glad that I own that. And um, yeah, his, his research is the research I was referencing, too. Um, and the sense of... Uh, having earned that thing also mm-hmm. and like associations around that thing. I've been doing a lot of research about how to spend money to make me happier and make us happier. Um, and we we should set, spend money on experiences, not things. However, if you can make that thing, that object into an experience that you feel every day when you see it. Um, like can you Amy, give me an example of that? Sure. So, uh, so Amy just gave me this felted peach, right? That I have gone insane for. And it's like, it's like my new little magic item. And, uh, and when I look at that peach, it's not the sensation of owning it. It's thinking about the experience of my friendship with Amy and how it's evolved and how that present was a sign that she really understood me. So that's, a, that's, that is building the experience around the thing which brings happiness as opposed mm-hmm. to actually owning the thing. Um, like my coffee maker doesn't make me that happy when I, I don't look at it and think, oh, I have this joyous experience of connection and friendship whenever I look at my coffee maker. Um, but yeah, it's building a sense of like personal development or personal or connection to others around that. Does that make sense? Totally, totally makes thing. sense. Um, and uh, and we should we should definitely link to a couple of Dan Gilbert's studies too. He's an excellent he's an excellent researcher. We love Dan Gilbert. Yes. Um, but uh, the reason I, I pointed out that sort of longitudinal like um, I want to be this kind of person goal. I want to be a person who makes collaborations happen type goal uh, is the way that I've structured mine too. There oh, well, there are two pieces. One is what do I want to do. Um, within the organization that I'm working on, um, which is PPU. And one set of goals is, uh, is the kind of person that I want to be. And mine are, mine are way more hippy-dippy than yours, Alex. <laughs> um, mine are uh, be connected to humanity, be in control of my own destiny, uh, do, 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 function optimally, and be curious. 
So I often put evidence that I am doing those things or those traits um, to sort of reinforce that and evidence in my life that I'm not doing those things and then plans for the future. Um, And I sort of, uh, with a friend of mine, we sort of check ourselves that we're continuing to try to be those people. Um, But also working on this, this thing, tours of duty, uh, which I know that you're sort of, you're experimenting with how to work with your crew at Indie Hall to best hammer out their, like, professional plans. Yeah, and actually, I mean, that's that's worth talking about here for mm-hmm. the, the Coworking Weekly audience in particular, because the, you know, the thing that I realized when we started hiring people to work at Indie Hall is we're not just bringing on people to do work, we're... Mm-hmm. Um, we're creating a liability Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. in the traditional business sense of now I have a person who, you know, I need to make sure I can pay and all of those sorts of things. In the fact that the person that you hire to run a co-working space is the only person who has to be there, right? They're there because it's their job. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to do it in a way where it was crystal clear. I'm not paying you to be here. I'm paying you because there's something else going on here and helping somebody understand the value of of being a part of Indie Hall in this new role. So we sort of had to create something. And there's a much longer story, uh, maybe for another day, about how we came to this. But the the key realization has been that there's there's a there's an agreement. Normally mm-hmm. the, the the employer agreement is you do work, I pay mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you create that more importantly, that's what people think it is. I think what it really is, is you create value for this company and mm-hmm. our clients or customers and you, I pay you. Mm-hmm. We have a slightly different agreement, although that's there and it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of understood. Um, the, the real thing that we work on is each other. And uh, what I mean by that is the promise is if you come and and become a part of the core team that runs Indie Hall, the people that get paid to be here in a way, mm-hmm. um, uh, then there's two things at play. Rather than think that I'm going to give you things to do, I don't really mm-hmm. assign a lot of tasks. When I do, it's mm-hmm. rare. Um, and I tell the people, I tell folks, I'm like, if you think I'm giving you things to do more often than I should, based on this conversation, tell me, and I'll say, you're wrong, or I'll say, holy crap, you're right, let's let's recalibrate. Um, and because the reality is, is I want you looking for things to do. Yeah. I want you to have that mindset of, how can I make Indie Hall better for everyone mm-hmm. in the room? And then do that. I I brought you on because I trusted you to do that, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the explicit understanding. And again, I'll say that out loud. The, but what's the exchange then? Well, the exchange is if you work on Indie Hall, Indie Hall works on you. Or maybe a better way to say it is look after Indie Hall, Indie Hall looks after you. Because everyone that I hire is working towards something of their own. They may know know what it they may know what it is, they may not know quite what it is. They may have mm-hmm. specifically have no idea what it is. We talked a little bit about this with the interview with with Adam in episode mm-hmm. 1 when I asked him, you know, what did you want to accomplish? And his answer was, I had no idea, but I knew that what I was working on wasn't helping me figure it out. Yeah, and that that actually relates to our first conversation about accreditation and hiring people is that, you know, the workforce, we hear from the from folks who hire people that like they're people don't have the right skills um but you seem to hire for ability and train for skill or you don't even train for skill you ask people to 
find their own training. Right. Um, but you, when, you know, I've known several of the people that you have hired and they, they all seem to have in common uh, a gregarianness, gregariousness and openness to experience, curiosity, ability to connect with people. Uh, Vanessa, I'll, I mean, I'll say right now, if there's, if you put a gun to my head and said you're only allowed to hire for one trait mm-hmm. from yeah. now moving forward in anything you ever do, mm-hmm. pick it now and forever hold your peace, it would be curiousness. Yeah. People who are curious can generally be taught almost anything else. Right. But you can't teach curiousness. And if you can, I have no idea how. Um I think you can maybe expose people to things that when will will open mm-hmm. up their curiousness. Mm-hmm. But the people who are curious and come here, I would actually say that this relates to both the employees, the staff. I, I hate calling them both of those things, but I don't have a better word. Why don't you say your crew? My crew. All right. Yeah. So the, my crew, <laughs> my crew, or and well, and the all encompassing, and the crew includes mm-hmm. the members of Indie Hall. Right. The people who come here with an expectation of what it's going to be mm-hmm. tend to struggle. The people who come with a curiousness of what it is and how it fits into their life, into their work, thrive. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's an amazingly consistent and clear distinction. And it's something we notice even in, in people when they show up for a tour. When they show up sort of with an expectation of, oh, I've been to a co-working space. I know how mm-hmm. this goes. Mm-hmm. And like that that can be a signal of, well, maybe, maybe yeah. not. Right. Um, whereas the people who come in going, sort of wide-eyed wondered like hang on what is this place how does this right. work i don't understand you know i don't understand isn't necessarily a, a bad thing so long as and in fact i would say if they've made it that far of not understanding and they've walked through the door we're in a very good place mm-hmm. so that's why our website is an invitation to walk through the door quite literally yeah. but when it comes to, to hiring the you know it changes my role too mm-hmm. so it's my job not to tell people what to do because i trust them to figure out things to do instead it's my job to coach them and help them set goals for themselves in the same mm-hmm. way that i set goals for myself or maybe better said in a way that works for them a lot of times people don't set goals at all or when they do they set them in a totally ineffective way so i help people you know help her set the right goals not even the right goals, but set them in a way where they, they're they actually going to get that, that satisfaction, right? Because that satisfaction is ultimately, I think, the source of momentum, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I want them yeah. to have that momentum because the goal is not for them to work at Indie Hall forever. In fact, mm-hmm. the specific goal is to to become a member of Indie Hall instead of a staff member of Indie yeah. Hall, instead of being part of that core team, stay a part of the core team as an alumni staff member, but more importantly, you know, go from one of our staff desks to one of our member desks. And um, I have a, I'm grateful that I have a, a, a very strong track record with that. Um, I think it's, it's been a mix of who, who comes to this sort of amorphous thing, like the conversation I had with Adam. But the hardest part, and hands down the hardest part, and something that we're very much still figuring out, but I also see other co-working spaces really struggle with because they're, when they hire staff, it's often because they've created a problem that they don't know how to solve. Yeah. And they're like, I know. Yeah. I'll hire, I'll hire, some, yeah, I'll hire a community manager. I'll hire a community that. manager. Yeah. The, the most fatal words in the industry. <laughs> um, I'll hire a community manager. And then I hear from that community manager. And for you know those of you who are that community manager, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the, the person who created a co-working space that's not 
um, doing is not fulfilling their vision. And suddenly mm-hmm. that's your problem. That's yeah. your job. And right. maybe you saw that as a challenge. Maybe you ex- got excited about that challenge and said, yeah, I can do it. But wh- who supports you then? Right. Right. Um, and I, in our arrangement, I make it my job to support you and not to tell you what to do, mm-hmm. but to help you think through those problems. Um, you know, it's, it's a totally, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that in my past I've had employers who I think whether they did it knowingly or not acted more like coaches. Yeah. Um, and I, I learned a lot, especially considering I was never involved in sports. So I've never had like a sports coach to, to look up to. Um, but I've had bosses along the way who, you know, the best ones didn't tell me what to do, but they told me how to explore and they guided me along the way. And and I think having that, uh, as a leadership trait for the people who run a co-working space is valuable because it's something that's also, it's a learned behavior. They're going to learn it and then they're, they can do that for the members as well. Right. So for me, it's also creating sort of a multiplier effect of my own approach. If I can't be in the room all the time, which is generally, you know, going to be true. If I'm future proofing Indie Hall against me going and doing other things to continue to fulfill my bigger, my bigger goals, then I need people in place that that are are going to be able to do, not just do the thing that I do in their own way, right? Not the way I would do it, but do mm-hmm. their thing, um, but also be able to transfer that to other folks. I think that's really important. I mean, what you're talking about is distributed knowledge creation, distributed responsibility, um, and maybe that can take us into open governance and how we think about uh, collaborative decision making and like the sort of communal understanding of space in an organization. Um, yeah, the main, yeah. I mean, well, and you, you already mentioned, you touched on it briefly with the, the tours of duty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, and all, you know, open governance, uh, the buzzword that a lot of people know is holacracy. Uh, and which, which, by the way, I'll go out and I'll come out and say I'm extraordinarily skeptical of um, of holacracy. Uh, well, yes. having, having gotten close, close and inside of things that yeah. call themselves it, um, yeah. the the defense that I've gotten back is, well, that's not true holacracy, and to which I will say, well, where is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's just let's just identify that as the buzzword, uh, and but sort of focusing on open governance in general. Um, open governance being uh, collaborative decision making, transparency, uh, holding each other accountable, collaborative decision making, um, which is what it sounds like when you are hiring staff and then sort of coaching staff. Um, the when P2PU was looking to reorganize ourselves after our executive director left. We thought about how to distribute responsibility amongst our members so that we could be a more flat hierarchical or less hierarchical organization. When we looked around, um, not a lot of people have done open governance well, and we only saw holacracy examples everywhere that we looked. And holacracy, as you know, Alex, it's still hierarchy. Yep, that's. I think that's the, the reason I'm skeptical. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, my, if I'm a, two, I have this weird superpower, right? This is my spidey sense. 
my spidey sense is for authenticity. Yeah. Rather inauthenticity, I suppose. And it's I like spent so much time to dis, like dismantling. Well, why does inauthenticity make my gut wrench the way that it does? It's a physical thing. It's yeah, really me weird. Me too. Yeah. And the the simplest the simplest uh, version of this I can really describe is when actions and words don't match. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? When actions and words don't match, I feel like there's this chemical reaction in my body that goes, yo, danger. <laughs> it's it's physically felt cognitive it's dissonance. Totally. So like, you yeah. know, we've got we've got chemicals in our body that are released when we're when we're legitimately in danger mm-hmm. um, to, to protect ourselves. Right. And so I feel mm-hmm. like that happens when I see inauthenticity. My version is amplified for mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, but holacracy is one of those things where I hear no management. Yeah. And I immediately look at it and I go, no, there is management. There is hierarchy. You're just calling it something else. And, totally. And you're moving. It's sort of like it reminds me of the way money gets moved around in governments. Yeah. Where, yeah, 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 yeah. where it's like, like, like semi laundered, actually. Yeah. It's, this is, yeah. Holacracy is management <laughs> yeah. laundering. I'm going to, yeah. that's, that's what we're going to call it today. Um, okay. and, 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 uh, yeah. And so, like, my skepticism comes from a, a, I don't think this is what you say it is. Well, totally. And uh, when we were working on our open governance structure, P2P really wanted to be careful because when you say there is no hierarchy whatsoever, that means that there's hierarchy that's implicit that no one's talking about. Right, which is worse. So then you, which is worse. So then you can't take it to task because it's not actually supposed to exist. Um, for instance, people in our organization, there are some folks who... Uh, have been there longer. There are some folks who speak in- native English. Um, so we've really, in our in our structure, we've really been trying to recognize, um, well, when we vote on a decision, the person who's going to be doing more of the work gets more of a measure in the voting that we do. Mm. Um, so that way we can't just be like, well, this is a huge tech job. Dirk, you're going to be working, you know, basically 70 hours a week for the next two weeks, but we all get an equal vote. Um, so we're, we're trying to put those mechanisms in place. And one of the things that we're working on right now are these tours of duty, what we want to do for the organization in the next six months to two years. Um, personally, what the goals are that we want to accomplish and what we think the organization needs to accomplish. Um, and the next step is the true test of whether, uh, whether our model is, is functioning is that we're going to ratify them. We all have to uh, sort of give our stamp of approval on everyone else's tour of duty and then hold each other accountable to them. So, uh, and this, this all comes from uh, Reed Erickson's new book, uh, The, uh, the Alliance. He's the, he's the fellow who's, you know, created LinkedIn. Um, and it's all about managing talent in the digital age where, it used to be, you know, if we worked, if Alex and I went to go work for 3M in 1988 and Alex and I were working in sales, 3M would be like, work for us forever. You're part of the family, which would make Alex and I miserable. But yep, we, would we wouldn't. Literally, <laughs> like, few, like, remember when I was talking about things that make me viscerally uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah. That's in that list also. But, but there was, there was, uh, there was a clear, um, there was a clear alliance between those two parties that if you worked hard, the company was going to take care of you. And now that doesn't exist anymore. So what sort of contracts can we make with each other that are more short-term and more transparent uh, to keep everybody 
involved and also help the organization. Well, the thing that I like about it also is it's not a contract to the organization, which is made up. It's mm-hmm. a contract to each other, the people. Yeah, yeah. So it's this a rem- psychological contract, yeah. Exactly. And, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, therefore, an emotional one and one that's yeah. founded in relationships. Totally. And trust, where like if you break the contract, it's not that I break it to a faceless organization and some, there's some penalty. It's I break a contract to a, to a person. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the keyholder policy at Indie Hall stems from exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's a way where we designed a system where we, I mean, there's so many messages wrapped up inside of that where, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, the, the, rather than create some sort of, these are the rules of holding a key to get into Indie Hall 24-7. Now, this is available only to, to full-time members for us, um, but and also only after a 30-day waiting period. And the reason for that waiting period is because in that waiting period, your job is to get to know at least three other key holders mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Uh, then sign off on you saying, I trust you. Mm-hmm. And I think that you're, it's not that you're worthy, I think you're trustworthy of a key. And it creates this sort of, contract amongst them and then to the person who's receiving a key it makes it clear that oh wow this is a contract to my peers not to the abstract that is indie hall and it's been so cool to see and i I wrote a blog post about it um a while ago about like why we did it how we did it how we rolled it out because it was in reaction to a pretty bad situation we we had a theft our old key holder policy which basically wasn't a policy finally crumbled um, but rather than put in a structure that was sort of rule bound, which generally doesn't work, um, we created something that was was socially friction, bound. yeah, friction, and uh, yeah, and created some intentional friction, and mm-hmm. people respond really, really well to it, um, to the extent that um, we had a, a non key related emergency it was water leaking into the building, mm-hmm. and a member was working late, noticed it, found somebody nearby to call. I happen to be on an airplane, so they're calling me while I'm flying to. California or Seattle mm-hmm. or something. Um, and by the time I got off the plane, it was already dealt with. And when I thanked our member, his name is George. Actually, Adam did this. It wasn't even me. Um, uh, George's immediate response is, I'm a key holder. Yeah, it's my like, responsibility. It's part yeah. of an identity now. Mm-hmm. To, like, mm-hmm. I look after this place. That's part of mm-hmm. that's part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, like building that stuff in is so powerful. So powerful and uh, so... You know, we talk about the the personal power and sense of belonging that that community, uh, those community activities impart, but it also like saves overhead. Like trust saves overhead. Absolutely. Uh, and I booked um, I booked a an Airbnb uh, room for Washington next week, and I had to scan in my ID. Oh, interesting. And I thought to myself, isn't this interesting? Um, what happens when we trust the platform or the organization to do the trusting for us? Mm-hmm. It means that you need to hire, recruit, and retain a massive security team uh, because people don't know each other and people don't trust each other. Right. So, which you know, is which is an interesting and and I will be man. That's a that's one of those like uh oh signs yeah. about Airbnb because I'm a huge Airbnb fan. It's absolutely my preferred way to travel, um, and I've had so many truly wonderful experiences because mm-hmm. of Airbnb. Um, and I see stuff like that and I get that it's a part of how they scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like a trade-off. Um, totally. It, and, and and not that trade-offs are, are bad, mm-hmm. but it seems like a short-sighted trade-off. The kind of thing where you say, 
well, we need this in order to get to the next level, but you don't think five levels ahead of all mm -hmm. of the, all of the damage that you'll do in terms right. of, you know, you know, um, uh, creating an atrophy on trust. Right. Um, what new problems will exist when you create that atrophy? It's like a, it's a ripple effect. I, I, yep, totally. And when I was, when I was going around doing my coworker ring research and you guys should know, full disclosure, I used to research Alex. That's, that's, <laughs> that should be said. Research. Full disclosure. Uh, I researched Alex and Indy Hall, but the folks who didn't have some sort of trust mechanism in place like Indy Hall had to spend massive overhead on security, and they had to dismiss uh, something like 7 to 10% of their members per year. So uh, so when you don't put these mechanisms in because place... Of, when you say dismiss, because they like broke a rule? Because they stole shit. Because they stole wow. shit. Yeah, 7 so, to 10%. So it, it didn't even work. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work. Uh, they have to hire. And seven to ten percent is a lot. Yes, that's crazy. And and yeah. I can say that in in um, in eight years we've dismissed two people. One because mm -hmm. he was a thief. So one out of however many thousands of people who have been through our doors, mm -hmm. our hundreds of members and thousands of people through our doors, one person was a thief, uh, mm -hmm. and the other person. And this is again for another day. It was um, was mentally ill. Right. And uh, that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done was was those two people for very, very, very different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know what percent one out of thousands is, but it's not seven to ten percent. Holy shit. Well, I shouldn't say just theft of physical stuff. There was there was sort of uh, I ideas and violations of space and yeah. you know when you put up these barriers people are bound to break them well, people so stop looking out for each other yeah that's not the priority anymore that's so interesting so um back to back to so you've got this tours of duty thing where you guys are writing down your goals and um and for yourself for the organization and then you sign off on each other mm -hmm. and and then what and then what uh well we're still working it out. It's learning as we go. But uh, it, at specific intervals, we'll check in with each other and say, are you doing these things? Are you not doing these things? Um, we all will track our time um, and see how the projects break down in terms of what we said we would do and what we're actually doing mm -hmm. um, as a means of both like self-reflection. Uh, am I becoming the kind of person that I want to become? And commitment to our team like, are we, are we following through in these things? Um, the really interesting part that's coming up this next week is we've completed our tours of duty, what we think we should do. What's coming up next is what do I think Dirk, Erica, Becca, and Carl, what do I think should be on their tours of duty? Um, interesting. Because that, that's, you know, that plays into our, our expectations for the organization. I could go... You know, in my tour of duty, I could say I want to go to Rio and take up dancing at Carnival. Um, but <laughs> which makes but, sense to me. <laughs> um, but does that does that fit what P two P U needs? Um, right. So this sort of al alignment of how do you foresee that conversation? Those conver is that like a how do you approach that? So uh, what we're trying to do is specking out our time for the projects in 2015 and seeing how many, uh, how much of what the projects need mm -hmm. and how much of what we have on hand mm -hmm. as, as staff members and seeing how those things line up. And so if, there, if there's two times as much learning designer needs as there are uh, business development, 
we get more learning designer or someone else on the team takes on some learning designer responsibilities um, or we do something else. So a big part of this is aligning what you want to do and what the organization needs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's um, one of the exercises that we've created. And in, in Jeff Damasi, my business partner, uh, really designed this for a retreat that we did a while ago, um, was this sort of reflection exercise, writing down goals. I wrote a, a blog post about this as well, which I'll link mm-hmm. to in the show notes, um, about um, where, where you explore goals and dreams. Mm-hmm. So on a longer term, so the normally on like a five to ten year term so that you can get out of the immediate stuff in three categories of personal professional and community growth. What are your mm-hmm. goals and dreams mm-hmm. personally, professionally and community mm-hmm. and taking some time, five minutes, 10 minutes to journal through each category and then sort of a think pair share exercise. Oh, you know you, how much I love think pair share. I know you do. Um, oh, and, so, and so then like the, the, you get a partner or a small mm-hmm. group and you share, you share in a round, whatever it is. We did this at a, a little co-working retreat that um, uh, my friend Susan uh, from Office Nomads organized a, a couple of months as well. And it was so good just to get sort of to see the the common themes amongst each other and you realize someone else's goal even if it's not the same as mine it helps me see my Mm -hmm. own as Mm -hmm. more real it's really cool yeah yeah. but the the other sort of really important part is those three categories sort of noticing themes and alignment so when you were talking about your goals and then the comp the the organization's goals the business's goals um them being aligned is crucial Mm -hmm. well and Uh, i would imagine that if you were looking at your, pis- your business, your personal, and your community goals, and there wasn't overlap or alignment in all of them, you would be somewhat of a dissociated or fractured person. Yeah. Like, or, or just like generally upset. Like, yeah. We're, we're, the way I see it, like when the world feels hard, it's mm-hmm. because those things are not in line. When those things are in line, the world seems easy. Um, and that's on a, a spectrum of relativity, right? So <laughs> I was like, oh, my, my postmodern on we self. The world is not easy. <laughs> However, it's a whole lot easier, relatively speaking, when mm-hmm. those things are in line. And the reason for that is because the, the, the bricks are getting stacked, right? My personal goals are supporting my professional goals. My professional yeah, goals are supporting is. my personal goals. And the community goals are supporting both. And both of those things are supporting the community. It's a network, mm-hmm. right? And... For, for myself and the people around me, which means it's also sustainable. It also means that things can go wrong in one and the other two will like pick up the, the slack and, and help fill in the, like basically help it heal in a way, which is kind of crazy to say. So, you know, it's sort of those, those very natural patterns of, um, I think is the banyan tree has the root networks that are actually like a forest of banyan trees is all one tree with interconnected roots. Rhizomatic. Rhizomatic, right? And so when one banyan tree gets sick, the network of banyan trees that are healthy channel nutrients to the sick tree to help it get better. Mm-hmm. Nature's weird, but kind of brilliant in that way. Um, and uh, that that relationship, you know, that's that you know the fact that nature's smart enough to do it, and it's taken it millions of years to do it. Um, when I you know when I look at patterns in in how we work, the first thing I think is like. Is there an example of this in nature? If the answer is no, we're probably being really dumb, right? Because because na- if nature hasn't figured out how to do this by now, we're not smarter than nature. Well, well, I think that I think um, I don't disagree. Mm. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it depends on where you look in nature. Um, and for a long time, you know, the evolutionary biologists were like. 
you know, men are aggressive and women are choosy because that's how nature is. And I was like, eh, well, but that's but that's that's superficial though. That's superficial yeah, though. Exactly. That's that's what, that's what I mean yeah, when I say it no, depends you're to- on what you look for in nature. You're totally right. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. I, when I say when I, I'm talking about like complex patterns. Yeah. Um. We. I think we. The, the the plight of intelligence that is you know that we have as humans is that we uh, think we're so clever, and um. I think cleverness being mistaken for intelligence uh, or, or wisdom, you know, we t- you know, the difference between it being having knowledge and having wisdom, mm-hmm. nature is wise. Um, so it's not that nature knows more than we do. It's that nature has the wisdom that we don't. Um, and so well, that's what, that's what people keep telling me about cats. They're like, you just don't have the wisdom that cats do. What? That's why you don't understand them. What? Yeah, I know. No, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> All right, um, that's 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 the perfect place to stop this conversation because that literally doesn't make any sense. We had we we had like an hour of the of total total sense making, and and now it's gone. Oh fuck! All right, okay. that's how this is gonna go. I'm okay with that. <laughs> this, this is great. Um, Vanessa, I know you've got some stuff to do in your day, and I want to thank you for this. This has been fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. It's really for me. And and uh and listeners, what you don't know is that Alex is under a blanket fort that is orange and has <laughs> I've improvised a recording booth at Indy Hall today because um of some poor decisions that I made last night. Um so- but I, I care I cared about the audio quality, so I tried to <laughs> Buffer myself from outside noise, and therefore I am under a blanket. Under an orange blanket, so it looks like he's a little like orange mushroom pod, and I've managed to keep a straight face about it for an hour. So if you're if you're lucky, I might include a link to a photo in the show notes, and okay. if not, Vanessa will probably leak one on the internet. Right, let's <laughs> let's stop and get the hell out of here, Vanessa. Have okay. a good day. Okay, love you. Bye. Okay, love you, bye. So y'all see why I love spending time with Vanessa and talking with Vanessa. Isn't she just a total blast and super, super smarty, right? So if you want to find out more about Vanessa and her work at P2P, you can also follow her on Twitter at Mozzadrella, M-O-Z-Z-A-D-R-E-L-L-A. Uh, that's Vanessa Generelli. Uh, so if this was a fun episode for you, I know it was a little bit different and a little bit longer than usual, um, but I'd love to hear what you think about it. And uh, since that was a longer one, I'm going to forego the longer outro. So I just want to thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for rating and reviewing. You guys are the best and uh we'll be back real soon with more episodes of the co-working weekly show thanks have a great weekend